0: Today we have uh, three passages, all from the book of Numbers. Uh, I'll begin by reading uh, Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And then they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourself for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord your God will give you meat, and you shall eat. You should not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept for him before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among you whom um, I am numbering 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word shall come true. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord God came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Madad. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Madad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would have put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Our next passage is from uh, chapter 12. This is verses 3 through 8. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. "'And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, "'Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting.' "'And the three of them came out. "'And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud "'and stood at the entrance of the tent, "'calling Aaron and Miriam. "'And they both came forward, and he said, "'Hear my words. "'If there is a prophet among you, "'I, the Lord, make known to him in a vision. "'I speak with him in a dream. "'Not so with my servant Moses. "'He is faithful in all my house.' With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And behold, the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to to speak against my servant Moses? And our last passage is from Numbers 14, 11 through 20. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought uh, up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of the land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So we are continuing our study of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So just as recap over the last few weeks, we have looked at various individuals in the Bible to see the different ways the Holy Spirit has manifested its power in their lives. Uh, We have seen the Holy Spirit work through wise administration and management in Joseph's life. We have seen the Spirit work in artistic creativity in Bezalel and Aholiab. And we've also seen the Holy Spirit work in prophetic critique and compassion for others in Micah. So today what we're going to do is look at how the Spirit works in Moses, specifically as it relates to leadership. Now, if you remember, we began our series with some foundational principles about the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in creation, bringing life, flourishing, and abundance. And it's humans who are created as God's agents or representatives to continue this task of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that often involves empowerment by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit empowers people as God's representatives to bring about life and flourishing into the world. And we have already seen some of the different ways this empowering works. Now, empowerment is not a word I have used up until now. Yet, I think it's important that we think a little bit about power and how it relates to the Holy Spirit, specifically in leadership. It seems like we right now as a society, and particularly in the white evangelical church, are having a moment when we are reexamining these issues. I know that in the discussion times, you probably heard me mention uh, this podcast that uh, seems to be very popular right now, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I know a lot of you are currently listening to it, but if you're not, if you're not a podcast geek like a lot of us here, uh, basically what this podcast is doing is detailing uh, the history of this uh, popular church in Seattle that was led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll. And when I first heard about this podcast, I wasn't really that interested in it. Um, Despite all the buzz it was generating, to me it was too much like watching a car crash. I'm not really that interested in taking pleasure in watching a church crash and burn, no matter how deserved or poorly a foundation it was built upon. However, that's really not the point of the podcast. I soon learned that it was more using this story to highlight a set of issues that has become prevalent in American evangelicalism and has led to a shockingly high number of church failures. And one of the common features of these failures, of this trend, is a tendency for a charismatic pastor to accumulate power and then to abuse that power. That could come in all kinds of different forms, as they've noted in the podcast. But often these pastors are able to elevate themselves because they claim a special endowment given to them by the Holy Spirit. This status gives them immunity from criticism, as well as emboldens them to justify their actions despite the damage they often leave in their wake. And this, this is a failure of leadership, and it's a failure of how leaders use and abuse their power. And since this seems to keep happening, I think it's important to ask the question, what does true spirit-powered leadership look like? Now, the first thing I think we ought to do is address this issue of power. I think it would be a little easy to say the problem is with power itself, but I don't think that's true. I think power does corrupt and that people are bad. And so if you give them power, uh, they will a lot of times use it to their own selfish ends. And it is therefore wise to limit the power given to any individuals to establish checks and balances. I don't disagree with that. However, I don't think it's power in and of itself that's the problem. Power is a means to an end. It is neutral. We view power negatively mainly because it's so often abused. But power is necessary if we want to enact any kind of change. And as I said earlier, God has given humans a position of authority. God has given humans mission a mission in this world. And that requires power to carry out that mission. On the other hand, the Bible is replete with examples of individuals who we are told, are endowed with the power by the Holy Spirit, and yet they abuse that gift. Uh, Just to give a couple of examples, uh, several times the Spirit is described as coming in power upon Saul. Uh, The Spirit is what enables Samson to achieve all his amazing feats. And while both of these men do some remarkable things, both Saul and Samson ultimately abuse their power, and it ends in disaster just like many of the problems we are seeing in churches today. There's nothing new under the sun. If there were podcasts back in the day, both Samson and Saul would have made for really interesting subjects. But from the time of the Exodus until the entry into Canaan, the power of God is exercised through Moses who leads Israel. In contrast to Saul and Samson and many of Israel's other leaders, the scriptures view the leadership of Moses positively as Moses leads the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Despite the constant grumbling of the people Moses is charged with, Moses remains committed to following the direction of the Lord. God says of Moses in one of our passages in Numbers 13, "...he is faithful in all my house." Now, I know it's true. I know some of your Bible nerds are already thinking, you know, there's that point where Moses makes this critical error of leadership toward the end of his career, and that does center on abuse of power, and that's true. But for the most part, the rest of Scripture continues to view Moses as one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history, despite that incident. So the question then is, what can we learn from Moses What characteristics from Moses' spirit-filled leadership career result in the wise use of power as opposed to the abuses and failures of characters such as Saul or Samson? And so in order to answer these questions, uh, we're going to look at uh, three stories from the book of Numbers. I know you all were so excited when you saw that you get to hear three passages from Numbers. The story contained in our first passage should be somewhat familiar to you because we studied it in the first sermon ser- sermon in this series. And this was a story about the people complaining because they remembered, like you remember they had all those great leaks back in Egypt. And so uh, God sends a wind to bring them this uh, like crazy amount of quail. And in that sermon, we were looking at the different ways that Ruach or spirit was translated. But today I want us to look at something different in the story. I want us to look at these 70 elders and particularly these two guys that show up at the end, uh, Eldad and Medad. So the context of this passage is that Moses is super stressed out by the burdens of leadership. The people are free and things are actually going pretty well considering they're in a desert, but they have water, they have manna, and they have the Holy Spirit who is leading them. Yet they want more, and so they complain to Moses. And as someone who runs a business, I completely empathize with Moses here, I know exactly where he's coming from. But God's solution is to select 70 men and take some of the spirit or ruach that is on Moses and distribute it to these 70 men. Now, I don't know what the mechanics of it of how that work is, I'm unclear. But the result is that Moses will share his authority, his spirit-filled authority, with these 70 men. So, so far, so good. However, I think things get really interesting in verse 26. Apparently, the spirit cannot be contained. And so it spreads outside the original group of 70 men to these two individuals named Eldad and Medad. And this outpouring of the Spirit alarms Joshua in particularly, probably because he's questioning their legitimacy. They're not elders. Why did they get the Spirit? How do they prophesy? They weren't selected for this. And notice, too, that the text specifically mentions that Joshua is Moses' assistant. And as we later learn, it is this Joshua who will take over the leadership of the Israelites after Moses dies. Joshua even gets his own book of the Bible. But uh, when Joshua complains to Moses, uh, Moses shuts down Joshua, asking him if he is concerned that Moses is sharing his power with these 70 elders plus these two randos. Uh, Moses' response is kind of tongue-in-cheek. After all, Joshua is Moses' assistant and probable successor. Any lessening, any uh, diminution of Moses' power then necessarily affects Joshua. You see what's going on here. So it may be that Moses' question is more sarcastic. It isn't, oh, is it for my sake you're concerned about? I think maybe Joshua might be for your sake. If I'm all of a sudden giving up my power, that means when you take over, you don't have as much. So Moses then Goes on to imagine a world in which the Holy Spirit is not limited to just himself or even the elders. Moses longs for a world in which everyone has access to the Holy Spirit elder, non elder, leaders, a couple of rando guys like Mel Me Dad, Medad and Eldad, men, women, everyone. That's what Moses' is, uh, vision is. So The point here, the conclusion we can draw from this first story about Moses is Moses has no desire to consolidate leadership in himself. Moses is not bothered at all by sharing power with the 70 elders. He's not even bothered by sharing his powers with these two random guys who show up out of nowhere. In fact, Moses longs to spread his power over as many people as possible. Moses is totally okay with God filling people with the Spirit. I mean, it even says in the passage that God is taking Spirit from him and giving it to others. But Moses has no desire to monopolize the power. So, what we can learn from this first passage, to to kind of conclude here, is that uh, the first principle of Spirit-filled leadership is that it's not jealous. Spirit-filled leaders do not mind sharing their power and authority. And in fact, spirit-filled leaders hope to see the Spirit at work in others, even people like Eldad and Medad, who we don't think the Spirit is supposed to work in. Uh, Spirit-filled leaders don't mind. Now, if we shift to the second story in Numbers 12, we read a description of Moses in verse 3. Moses was very meek more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now your translation may have humble. That's another, that's a good translation too. And I always say this is a fun verse to talk about when you start thinking about like, you know, traditionally who wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? Moses, right? So it's kind of funny here that Moses is like, now Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth, (laughs) I always think that's funny. Of course, I guess it's not bragging if it's true, but in any way. uh, We need to understand here, to understand this passage, we need to understand what is meant by meek or humble. So, of course, we can't do a sermon without a word study, and uh, yes, yes, yeah. If we're not talking about newsmatics or ancient Near East agricultural practices, we've got to have word studies. So, the Hebrew word here is anav, okay? Now, We think of humble, we think of humility as kind of like an internal disposition. It's an internal quality. It's like that person has a humble attitude. Uh, However, that's not really the really true of how anav is used most of the time. Anav is usually used as a state that is inflicted upon the person from the outside. A person is made humble because of an affliction, like maybe a health problem or poverty. Or when a person is demeaned or overpowered by others, they're made humble. And so the key is that anav, what it, what it represents is not just like, oh, this person has a, a humble attitude. It is, it is indicating a lack of power and resources. It's an inability to cause change or accomplish a goal. In other words, when Moses is described as humble, it means that he realizes he does not possess any power of his own. Moses was not someone who is self-sufficient and assured. He was a person who knew that he was not self-sufficient and assured. And we even see this played out in his own life. Uh, Often Moses panics. He's unsure of what to do. But he wasn't always that way, right? Remember, uh, early in his life, uh, Moses had seen a Hebrew slave beaten by an Egyptian. And Moses had taken uh, matters into his own hands and killed uh, that Egyptian. And what what happened is this led to a life of exile in which uh, Moses learns the limitation of his power. The next 40 years Moses would uh, spend as a simple shepherd, which is quite a contrast to the education and privilege he must have received in Pharaoh's court. But when we find uh, Moses encountering God at the burning bush, he no longer is the take-charge, prideful, action-oriented person of his youth. Moses repeatedly denies that he has the ability to carry out God's plan for him to lead the Hebrews out of slavery. From now on, Moses' instincts are different. When confronted with a problem, Moses does not rely on his own ability and wisdom for solution. Instead, he goes to God. Moses relies on the spirit and not his own talents. And far from making Moses an an ineffective leader, Moses' reliance on God leads to an incredibly close relationship with God. Verse 7 says, God uh, God says in verse 7, No one is more faithful in all my house than Moses. And while others encounter God indirectly through riddles, God speaks to Moses directly, as the verse says, mouth to mouth. It is only done by divesting himself of power and reliance on his own ability and by being made humble and a servant that Moses is able to enter into this incredibly close relationship with God. So, The second lesson we learn about spirit-filled leadership is it is power without pride. Moses is not the fist-pounding alpha male who wields power with absolute conviction that he is right, the way we typically think of a leader. Moses is full of doubt and uncertainty, but the only thing Moses is unwavering about is that he can accomplish nothing except by the spirit, and it is this knowledge that makes him an effective leader. So if we turn now to our last passage from Numbers 14, uh, this passage occurs after a set of 12 spies were sent into the promised land of Canaan to scout out the land in preparation for the Hebrews to enter. Of the 12, 10 of the reports are negative, warning the people of the strength of the inhabitants of Canaan. And so the people changed their mind about this whole promised land plan even though the spies also report the abundance and fertility of the land. Instead, what the people want to do, they no longer want to try to fight for the land God had promised him. Instead, they want to get rid of Moses. And they want to appoint a new leader who will take them back to Egypt. Because, you know, Egypt is where all the leaks are, right? So God is understandably uh, angry at the people. After all, God had freed them from slavery. He had destroyed the Egyptian army. He led them safely through the desert. He provided food and water, even quail for them. And so God responds by offering Moses uh, this uh, deal. He will transfer all the blessings and promises to Moses alone. These ungrateful people would be wiped out, but Moses and his descendants would now receive all the promises that were given to Abraham. Who knows? Maybe uh, these people, instead of being the uh, sons and daughters of Abraham, the Israelites, they would be known as the nation of Moses. But Moses here will have none of it. Moses is uninterested in his own glory. Instead, he thinks of his people, no matter how grateful and troublesome they are. Moses thinks of God's own glory rather than his own. What will the Egyptians or all the other nations think if God leads the people out of Egypt only to wipe them out? Instead, Moses wants God's power to be revealed. Moses wants God's character to be revealed. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. So in this story, we learn the third lesson of the spirit-filled leadership. It is power without ambition for oneself. Moses never once thinks of his own reputation or image. He has given an amazing offer, but must reject it because it would necessarily come at the expense of God's own glory. Spirit-filled leadership then desires more than anything for the character and glory of God to be revealed, not one's own glory. So, power that shares rather than power that is jealous. Power that is born out of weakness rather than power that is characterized by strength. Power that thinks of others and of God's glory rather than power for the sake of personal ambition. That is what we learn from Moses that spirit-filled leadership looks like. Now, as we uh, read this further story Uh, uh, of Moses and how he fits into the big picture of the Bible, uh, there's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 makes this promise that the Lord God will raise up a leader like Moses, but greater. And what we find out later in the story is that Jesus is that leader. And so we see that like Moses, Jesus will exercise his power in a different way. In fact, Uh, You know, just uh, something to think about maybe at lunchtime today, maybe something to discuss. Think about when Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Uh, In all of those, uh, we have an attempt by Satan to have Jesus abuse his power, facing the same kind of temptations that Moses faced in the wilderness. And just like Moses, Jesus will have none of it. Now, there is no clearer contrast, I, I just think this is just such a great story, there's no clearer contrast of Jesus' view of power with our common human ideas of power than the incident when James and John try to claim for themselves positions of authority in Jesus' kingdom. The story is actually recorded in three of the four Gospels. And I know if you've been here for a while, I've referred to this story a lot. I've probably used it in like three sermons already. And I'll probably use it again because it's so clutch in explaining how exactly power works in God's kingdom. Jesus' response to James and John and their their quest for, for having power and authority is that what they want is to rule and lead like everyone else in the world. They want power for their own glory. They want power for their own ambition, and they don't want to share it. They want the positions of privilege, and they don't want anyone else to have it. But Jesus calls them out, and he says that if that is what they want, they're no better than every other petty tyrant and every other dictator and every other impressive empire that has continually enslaved and beaten Israel and every other kingdom and people since Cain slew Abel. Jesus calls them to be better than that. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Even as the Son of Man came, to be ser- it came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what spirit-filled leadership looks like in God's kingdom. Now, here's the really cool thing about this story. It'd be fine. I almost wanted to end uh, the sermon here, but I think this is just a really neat point to think about. Remember uh, earlier in our first passage that we talked about, <clears throat> remember how the 70 elders were, were filled with the Spirit, and Moses says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of them. Well, it turns out, That later on in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel is given a revelation of a time in which God would do exactly that. That God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Uh, This is is from Joel chapter 2. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and female servants, servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You see, Joel, what Joel understands is that the goal of God's people is for the spirit to be no longer limited. We see this foreshadowed in this story with Madad and Eldad. The goal is a democratization of the spirit. And it's a, it, it cuts across cultures. It cuts across sex. It cuts across wealth. It cuts across class. Everyone can be filled with the spirit. And therefore, everyone can have power. And what is even cooler about this story is that it does not end with Joel's uh, prediction of a distant future. No, in fact, in Acts 2, Peter sees the incredible outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, and he realizes that Joel's vision is being fulfilled right then. So what does that mean for us as a church? It means that the Spirit is poured out to everyone. And the one thing we do not want to do is be Joshua and try to limit the power. Instead, we need to embrace the new world in which the Spirit is given to everyone. We need to embrace the Medads and Eldads. That is God's plan and purpose for the world. To limit the Spirit to a select group of people and to invest them with greater authority and power would be a reversal. This is what the rest of the world does. This is what causes Jesus to rebuke James and John. It shall not be so among us. Instead, what we need to do is embrace this vision of a new world in which all of us are filled with the Spirit and are all given power and authority and to fight against any who, anyone who would limit it for themselves or jealously guard their privileges, who would take pride in themselves, who would use the Spirit for their own gain and ambition rather than for the kingdom and for others. It shall not be so among us. For us to lead in the kingdom and to exercise power of the Holy Spirit means to abandon all those sorts of ideas about what the world says leadership will look like and instead embrace Christ in Christ crucified. Because only by being slaves to others can we be the leaders that God wants us to be.